Hi, it's Joey Remini here from seekingbalance.com.au. I'm a vestibular audiologist and neuroplasticity therapist focused on the recovery of vertigo and tinnitus. And today I'm really pleased to be talking to Vicky Stewart, who is a vestibular physiotherapist with a really keen interest in helping clients who go through sudden onset of vertigo and how to quickly and effectively help them reach recovery and get the education they need. So welcome to the call, Vicky. Thank you very much, Joey. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, it's really exciting to connect with other people who are as geeked up in the vestibular field as I am, because I know I've spent a lot of time, you know, understanding the fine details and mechanisms of the inner ear. And, you know, there's not so many people out there who you can share that conversation with. So I'm curious on a personal level, what brought you to love the vestibular system to the point that you would want to do a PhD in it, which is a really big life commitment. So talk us through what got you to that place of being in our vestibular field. It is a big life commitment. Past <laughs> six years. <laughs> and um, when I, before I started my PhD, I was working as a physiotherapist um, in the acute hospital setting. So seeing people after they presented to the emergency department um, and I noticed that people were presenting with dizziness and I didn't feel like they were getting the best assessment and management plan before they were either admitted for a lengthy stay or discharged without the appropriate plan in place. Mm. So after I did a little bit of training, um, I then embarked on the journey of how to improve that process. And would you be so kind as to share with everybody what's your vision of the best outcome have you had vertigo yourself? No, no, okay. I have not had vertigo. So I can't personally feel that, but I have seen hundreds and hundreds of people. Have you, have you had calorics done or, or any artificial vertigo? Haven't had calorics done. Maybe one day. It's, um, so when it first happens, for those of you listening who haven't experienced sudden onset of vertigo, I mean, it's literally like you think you're dying, stroke, heart attack, like your eyes are whizzing everywhere, you're or you can't see at all, or your horizon's bopping. Often there's a massive nausea or vomit reflex. Sometimes, well, in the vast majority of people, there's anxiety because you, you're suddenly getting your eyes and your ears and your brain are not in sync. They're getting conflicting messages. So it feels like you've been thrown into the washing machine on a spin cycle, but you know logically that that shouldn't be happening. So you're very aware that something is absolutely not right in your body and in your brain and in your eyes and in your ears. And the natural emotional response, I've only met one person who didn't get anxiety and that person was a comedian. <laughs> <laughs> and so often there'll be like the heart pounding, you might feel the disconnected, discombobulated, lightheaded, um, kind of astronauty, overwhelmed feeling. So there's a bunch of things going on. And generally speaking, you want to know as soon as possible, am I dying? What's wrong with me? And it's, it's incredibly traumatic. So a lot of people will be rushed to the hospital, not always, but in their severe cases, they probably will be taken to the hospital. And from that place, they're seeking reassurance, they're seeking answers, they're, they're, their whole life has just been flashed before their eyes, more or less. So in those situations, Vicky, when people come very distressed, very uncertain, sick, potentially even vomiting, what do you feel as a vestibular audiologist with a kind of a special understanding in this um, hospital system setting? What do you think is the best thing that can happen for these people when they 
when when in this situation in this scenario in an in an ideal scenario yep. the person would present and immediately be assessed by a, a ed doctor who has experience and training in assessing dizziness um, they would do a basic screen to then determine if it seems like it is of a vestibular origin or a neurological origin compared to a say cardiac origin yeah other things um, once they're down the line of that it's a neurological um, origin or vestibular, um, then they would either complete an array of objective and subjective tests themselves, plus joining in with a vestibular physiotherapist who has training and experience in this area. We can attend to them right then and there when they're in the emergency room. Um, ideally, the hospital would have a neurologist involved and mm -hmm. be able to attend to them right at that bedside as well. And the first priority is to rule in or rule out a stroke. Yeah. Um, because that is, uh, vertigo can be a symptom of stroke. So when someone presents to emergency, that is of the prime of importance. Um, and a vestibular physiotherapist and a neurologist and an ED physician together can all help make that um, determination and they may require imaging. So ideally, again, the hospital would be able to rush that person off to have imaging done mm -hmm. in a very quick manner. Mm -hmm. um, and then further tests would be done and management would commence straight away. So, for example, if a stroke was ruled out and they felt that it was um, BPPV, for example, which can present in the same type of manner, um, then positional tests would be done straight away in ED and treatment would be commenced straight away. Follow-up would be offered straight away after they're discharged. So if they could go home safely, then mm -hmm. they'd go home and then be brought back in either the following day or a couple of days later. Um, that follow-up treatment would happen by the f trained vestibular physiotherapist and they'd have ongoing treatment sessions until they had no problems left. Um, what, we, what we know, though, um, mm. can happen is that every hospital is um, funded differently or, or funded um, to a different extent in how large the hospital is. So yeah. lots of hospitals don't have neurologists. They don't have physiotherapists in ED. If they have physiotherapists in ED, they may not have the right training or they may not have the capability to get to the emergency department in a quick mm -hmm. manner because their workload might be somewhere else. Um, hospitals may not have imaging MRI machines available. They also may not have audiology services available at the hospital. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a huge variance in what an emergency department can offer the person when they arrive with symptoms of dizziness and vertigo. Would you say, because you've worked in emergency departments, right? And that, um, <clears throat> excuse me, when Vicky says ED, she's referring to emergency department. <laughs> yeah. And when she says BPPV, she's referring to positional vertigo, benign paroxysmal positional vertigo, which we've spoken about a lot on this program, yeah. on this YouTube and podcast. So when you go to emergency departments, would you say in your humanity and in your personal observation, even beyond your professional observation, that the emergency doctors are really very skillful at, at, at in, in a bedside clinical observation way. Like their training is to scope out, is this life-threatening or is this not life-threatening? Like that big question, I suppose, is, is what they spend all of their years training. Do you think they're good at that? And that people, no matter what hospital they go to, if an emergency yeah. doctor says, look, I feel that this is not a life-threatening condition, 
I don't think we can say that no matter where you go, you're going to have a doctor that's experienced in differentiating between a non-emergent and emergent disorder from mm. vertigo symptoms. And that's, that's an issue and that's something have, that needs Have you addressing. seen that before where people were sent home saying, don't worry, and then they dropped dead? Uh, no, I haven't seen that they've dropped dead, but I have seen that they then have to represent a hospital because their symptoms weren't addressed and that then they go on and have a diagnosis of a stroke. Um, so yeah. unfortunately for the doctors, they have um, a lot mm. of other pressures, for example, yeah. um, time pressures mm-hmm. put on place on them and um, restrictions on services available to them. So some hospitals just don't have the right imaging to be able to help the diagnosis. Yeah. Is um, it mostly a CT scan that they would do? For or that? MRI. Or yeah, MRI. CT in the very early stages, um, in the first 48 hours. Looking for a bleed. MRI to confirm after that. Yeah. So just so people are kind of understanding what we're talking about is we're looking to see is have there been any bleeds around the inner ear or have there been any any lack of oxygen or lack of deliberate delivery through the arteries and the capillaries yeah. and the blood circulation systems that are really generally speaking effectively feeding all the parts of the inner ear and the nerves from the inner ear to the brainstem midbrain and so on. And so when people experience stroke, there can be a lack of oxygen, lack of nutrients and the blood flow circulation has blocks and sometimes and that and that's what the doctors are trying to identify yeah which means it's not an inner ear problem at all it's more of a neurological circulation which is where we call it a stroke instead and it's in particular the the base of the um, brain the cerebellum strokes in that area can Mm. mimic symptoms of um, peripheral or inner ear vestibular problems that aren't a stroke but the symptoms when they first present to the hospital can appear the same and it's yep. the ed medical team to help differentiate whether it's a stroke that's happening more likely in the brain stem or the cerebellum in the back mm-hmm. of the brain or or could be a stroke affecting the inner ear or is it a peripheral inner ear problem that we call benign um it doesn't mean that it doesn't affect people in an extreme way and an ongoing way and potentially worse than a stroke but in an ED setting in an emergency setting there's certain therapies that can be offered to someone who's having a stroke Mm. that can um, flip the or improve the outcomes if it's addressed appropriately quickly and that's essentially the emergency physician's main priority not to miss a stroke yeah their priority isn't trying to figure out which vestibular problem it is in the first instance. But they might not even have those skills because we have to remember that doctors are so very specialised in, you know, if you think about our health as being a massive, massive big jigsaw puzzle with thousands of different pieces, each doctor specialises in one piece, you know, and they spend a lot of years you know, researching and understanding that intimately. And so if, if an emergency doctor is highly specialised in, in various types of strokes, that's going to take years and decades of clinical experience for that doctor to be specialised there, which means they won't necessarily have taken the time to understand all the various parts of the vestibular system and vestibular disorders. That's right. And they will need to refer on to a vestibular specialist for that. Yeah. And that's where vestibular physiotherapists are stepping up and having an important role. Mm. However, there's only 
you know, a handful of vestibular physiotherapists that have a training and experience in the emergency department setting. Yeah. Uh, so unfortunately, if you arrive at a hospital with these, or if you have in the past and you didn't get attended to in a way that you felt was um, holistic and um, thorough, um, it's very likely that that hospital didn't have the resources or training to provide the best um, assessment and management. And unfortunately, that is the um, stage we're at within a lot of hospitals in Queensland, I can talk of, and yeah. um, Australia. So I just want to go back to, I'm quite sure when I interviewed neurologist Dr. David Schmulevitz, which was actually quite a while ago now, um, I said to him, you know, a lot of people out there with dizziness and vertigo and vestibular kind of very vague diagnosis. So these are the people who are not falling into any clean category of BVV or many years or whatever. They, he, the, the question they have is, you know, have they missed something? Am I dying? And he said, look, it's incredibly rare that the doctors will have missed a life-threatening condition. Like if you're going to drop dead, it's likely the doctors will pick that up. And he said, even when it does come to cerebellar degenerative conditions, which was his specialty, mm -hmm. um, it's, they're often very slow moving. So if, you, if there was a, um, a genetic condition where your poor old cerebellum was significantly impacted and neurons were dying and degenerated in that part of your body and your brain, it's generally very slow acting and you have absolutely plenty of time to form a relationship with the specialized doctor who can understand your cerebellum and guide you through it. They can't stop it. They can't prevent it, but they can help you understand the changes you're going through and work in a holistic team and multidisciplinary team to ensure that you get, you know, muscle toning, that you have use of your residual vestibular reflexes and spinal reflexes so that overall the impact on your life is reduced as much as possible. So I, I think it's really important that people, if you can't find the doctor initially on day one who can help you feel at ease and understand your questions, you generally have time. It's, you know, and I think if it, is something that's very imminent and requires immediate surgical intervention, um, chances are the doctors will pick that up quite quickly. And we have to trust that that's their training. Okay? They're, they're looking at ways to help you and doctors love to help. They're like, if they know that they can surgically fix you, believe me, they'll tell you. Yeah. And that's why when someone presents to the ED, that is their primary goal yeah. is to figure out whether it's that in that emergent category. That's their goal. So if they're not addressing all the other um, potential vestibular problems that it could be, it's because they're really looking to try to exclude the, the dangerous, life-threatening um, disorders or tumours, etc. And that's what I meant before when I said if people go to an emergency hospital, I would imagine the doctor is capable of identifying that. Yes. Not, not the vestibular specialty, but just yes. is it life-threatening and does this person need immediate life-saving yes. medical, you know, attention? And, and, and that's where their knowledge really sits. And thank goodness, you know, I'm, yes. if I ever go to an emergency hospital, that's exactly what I want the doctors to help me understand. Yes. Sure. So yeah. let's just talk through a little bit about, because some people might not have understood what it meant to have like assessments and treatments and follow-ups. Yep. So from the audiology perspective, we are looking at the 
hearing information, so how the cochlea is collecting hearing information and if that's being delivered appropriately and, and effectively to the brain on the left and right sides. Mm-hmm. We're looking at the five balance organs, so the utricle, the saccule and the otoliths and the semicircular canals, the posterior, anterior, horizontal. And so you've got your 10 balance organs and you've got your two hearing organs, so we're talking about left ear and right ear. And what we want to do is first and foremost check the easiest, when it comes to vertigo, the easiest thing would be doing whole pike tests and roll tests to check the horizontal canal and posterior canal for little floating calcium debris in the ear. And if we can identify that there's a positional vertigo, then technically that means you've got a very healthy ear system and we can really elegantly treat that and support you through treatments if you need any home treatments. And so it doesn't mean that you actually have an ear problem or an ear issue or an ear injury. It's a healthy ear, but the calcium particles are displaced in the wrong spot. So that's not a neurological or brain condition. It's really an elegant assessment treatment. And we would expect that you return back to normal pretty promptly. So that's probably one of the key simple things that we're looking out for because that can really get overlooked. And I don't know about you, Vicky, but I've seen people who have been diagnosed over 20 years ago and never offered a treatment. So they were actually given the correct diagnosis, but the doctors never said you can treat it because maybe 20 years ago that that doctor didn't know it could be treated. My record was 42 years of having vestibular symptoms that they hadn't been assessed for BPPV. So they, they hadn't received the diagnosis. Yeah, wow. They hadn't been assessed for it and it was treated within a few sessions and it was fantastic and, you know, she yeah. gave flowers and it was all the lovely blossoms. Yeah. But unfortunately... It's life-changing. It's life-changing. Yeah, life-changing, yeah. Um, so from a vestibular physiotherapy point of view, um, the assessment can differ slightly if it's in the emergency department versus if we have an hour and a half in an outpatient setting, but um, we spend a lot of time on the history because we can gain a lot of information from the history. So questions about the symptoms, questions Mm -hmm. about whether it was a first attack or whether this is a a recurrent attack, whether it's a long-standing issue, whether it's um, spontaneously occurs or whether it's a positional related symptom. So whether you move and then you get the symptom compared to someone who's just sitting still and has symptoms. Mm-hmm. Uh, how long the symptoms last can really help with the diagnosis. So does it last for a few seconds and comes and goes? Does it last for minutes, comes and goes? Does it last for hours? Is it continuous? Mm-hmm. Uh, and what are the associated symptoms like tinnitus? Um, hearing loss. Um, hearing loss, um, migraines, headaches, um, imbalance, falls, um, and once we get a good clear picture from the history, we then that can then target our objective assessment, which is the physical things, the signs mm-hmm. that we want to um, get from the assessment. Um, we often first look for nystagmus, so we observe for nystagmus, the type of nystagmus. Do you want to, do you want to just explain yeah. <laughs> to people what nystagmus is in case they haven't remembered what that word yeah. means? So nystagmus is an involuntary eye movement um, and we, we can see the eyes actually mm. moving. So often it's a torsional one or it might beat up and down and the combination and the type of nystagmus um, can lead us to a diagnosis as well. And it's like a puzzle. So mm. not one little assessment finding tells us the diagnosis. It's the history fitting with all these other assessment bits that yep. then as a combined thing can fit with a diagnosis. Um, 
And that's probably why it's not a, an easy area for um, someone that doesn't have training to just pick up quickly. Um, so after we look at the type of nystagmus, um, doing a different tests, we um, go through a range of ocular motor tests. So mm -hmm. that's things like um, getting them to follow your finger, looking at the range of movement, um, looking at... Do you at do that face-to-face -face or with the video goggles ass uh, assessing and graphing the yeah, so looking eye movements? Yeah, and again, it depends what service and what hospital, etc. Um, but we had access to, I used to take a trolley with my goggles um, and the computer to the emergency department. Mm -hmm. And um, so I would do some tests without the goggles and some tests with the goggles. Yeah. Um, and I would record. It, um, it was then a training tool for the ED doctors as well. Um, that 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 assessment would then turn into a head impulse test where we would be looking at the vestibular ocular reflex to determine mm -hmm. if that reflex has been affected in one of the ears and whether that picture fits with the nystagmus that we're seeing and fits with the history. That presentation can help determine whether it's a stroke or whether it's a, a vestibular neuritis, for example, in the acute hospital setting. Mm. We'll do those tests and in the outpatient setting. So if you've had it for a few months and then you're seeing me as an initial assessment, but our thought process might be a little bit different um, because people present differently in these findings, whether they're acute in the first days, et cetera, versus someone who's had it for a few months. Yeah. Um, we then go on and do um, more vestibular ocular testing, vestibular ocular reflex testing. And we would also do positional testing um, which is testing, as you mentioned before, for BPPV. Um, and we look for reflexes. We test reflexes and we test their, their gait, so their walking ability and mm -hmm. their balance. Yeah. Um, and they're all functional. That, yeah, functional balance. So things like walking forwards, walking backwards, walking along the line, walking with eyes closed, walking one foot in front of the other, walking and stepping over a target, walking and turning around quickly, walking, turning your head from side to mm, side or up and a, down. That's a tricky um, one. Yeah. Yeah. So they're all the functional walking tests that we would look at and we'd mm. look at static balance as well. So standing with feet together, standing with feet together, eyes closed, standing on foam with eyes open or eyes closed, feet apart, feet together. Um, so the, the list of assessment goes on, but it is, um, it is very thorough and it's, it um, can be targeted to the history. So for example, if someone the history very much fits with BPPV. So they have um, sudden onset of positional vertigo brief. Uh, that, that's brief in duration and they um, have a normal ocular motor assessment there and they don't have spontaneous nystagmus. But on positional testing, it reproduces their symptoms and it's positive for a particular canal of BPPV. We go on and treat that straight away. We may not need to do other tests mm. at that point. Um, if that then resolves the symptoms, that's great. Well done. We move on. If it resolves some symptoms, but then there's other symptoms left over, we then go on and do further assessment. Um, I think that's a really good point to make. And I, 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 I speak about it a little bit, probably not enough. Many, many, many people have multiple diagnoses. So you may have BPPV and many years or many years and vestibular migraine or vestibular migraine and triple PD yeah. or vestibular neuritis and BBBB, you know, and I think part of being a health professional or a doctor assessing you and your capacities, look, we're only getting one little snapshot in time 
And so as we work with you over time, we better get to know your brain, your inner ears, your spinal column, and also the emotional impacts of these symptoms and how the emotional brain might be impacting on part of your neuroplasticity. And so it's really this continuity over time of getting to know you as a whole person that we can give you probably the most thorough and robust professional opinion. Mm. And so the the poor old emergency department are really just seeing you at one point in time when things can be messy, you can be vomiting and sick and barely able to talk. And they're trying to get all this clinical information out of you. And you're just like, I need a cuddle. (laughs) And so I think, so I think it's like, you know, we have to have realistic expectations on this, the, the profoundly subtle nature of vestibular disturbances and conditions and it may take you a number of visits to various health professionals, doctors or hospitals until you find a, a, a health professional who, you, who speaks your language, who listens to you and who helps you understand the transformations happening within your body. And when it comes to those bedside functional tests that we do with clients, whether it be sitting, standing, squatting, lying, walking, eyes open, eyes closed, you know, every day we see you that your results can be different based on how you're feeling and how much sleep you've had and whether you've just had a fight with your partner or, um, you know, a little, a little car accident or something. And, you know, I often say to people, you know, if, if I got you, if I asked you to walk along a really steady wooden plank that was on the floor, so not elevated at all, and you were just walking in a straight line along a big steady plank, you would just do it, right? It's just you just walk straight. It's like being in a corridor. It's easy. If we were then to take that same wooden plank and elevate it 200 meters in the air and put crocodiles in a raging river underneath you, the physical challenge hasn't changed at all. You're walking along the same plank, but suddenly we have an emotional component and that emotional brain sits very closely nestled into the brainstem and midbrain of your vestibular relay system and they actually interact. And so we can become unstable and unsteady and our vestibular reflexes are all confused and inefficient. And it's not a physical problem that's happened. It's an emotional introduction of threat and danger. So it's the whole physical, mental, emotional, spiritual aspect that we're working with as a, as a human and so I think there's only so much we can do if, if you've got a 15-minute assessment or a 40-minute assessment or an hour and a half, et cetera. So I think one of the take-home messages that Vicky and I wanted to share with everybody listening today is just be careful where you're putting your expectations and who you're sort of externally relying on to, inverted commas, fix you. Yeah. Because realistically, it's... It, neuroplasticity and healing is something that happens within you in your own time in your own body that only you can do yourself and all of the health professionals are there to help you reassure you you're not dying to make sure you've got the best medical support available if necessary and to really guide you to be motivated to have your own daily practice so that you can elegantly reset your vestibular ocular reflexes, your vestibular spinal reflexes, and soothe any emotional anxiety that's arising in between attacks. Two things that this brings up when you're talking about all of that is um, one, education, and mm. second is the team, the team that's required to help with this. It's a team, um, multidisciplinary, multidisciplinary um, treatment approach. Um, so back to the education first. Um, you know, when someone's in an acute setting like the emergency department, ideally someone mm. like myself would offer the education of, 
this is what is expected to happen. This is what will follow up will happen. And then at that point, we'll do further tests. And these are the possibilities of what might happen. Um, that's very hard to do when someone's in an emotional state and is feeling awful to take on too much information at that point. So we have to, as practitioners, really limit the amount of education that we can offer at that point. We want to give education and advice and a small amount is good. But if we, off, if we told you everything that could possibly happen at that point after, it would be too overwhelming and there's too many variables and, and too many um, possibilities of what could happen. Um, but what does need to happen is follow up to get further education and further assessment. Um, so I find myself uh, in my current job, which is um, seeing patients from an ear, nose, throat specialty wait list. Um, so people that have been waiting on to see an ear, nose, throat specialist and I take them off that wait list to see them in a quicker manner rather than just waiting for further months. Um, and if they need ENT after I see them, they go back onto the wait list. But I find when I see these people who have been waiting already for a few months since the onset of their symptoms, a lot of what I'm offering is advice and education. And um, then I, the reason that's important mm. is to, for, for you as a, the person with the symptoms to understand why you've had these symptoms and what you need to do to help yourself improve those symptoms. So sometimes our natural instinct is to wrap ourselves up in cotton wool and sit on the couch and wait for symptoms to go away. Whereas in reality, what we need to do is get back out there, get outside, get walking, get moving, bring on the symptoms to then our body to get used to them again so that then they can go away. So it's that education is absolutely essential to, to take on that advice and for someone to really um, embrace it rather than just being told, that's what you need to do, off you go. Um, well, it's, and, and, and the other thing is, is it's different for everybody because actually probably, um, so Vicky and I work in different areas in terms of Vicky's really at the acute, um, so the, probably the first six months, even the first day, first weeks of getting symptoms, whereas I'm working with people who've had symptoms for at least you know, six months, if not years. And a lot of people have been told, get moving, come on, push through. You've got to feel it. You've got to expose yourself. And that hasn't worked for them. So their brain has actually rejected the stimulation because they're living every day of their lives as though they're elevated on that wooden plank. And yep. getting out of bed is terrifying. Going to the supermarket yeah. is terrifying. Putting on their shoes. And so their their nervous system is actually rejecting all of that novel stimulation and so their therapy has to start with actually soothing calming and finding ease and safety before they're ready for any vestibular exercises so if you're listening and thinking like ah oh, like nothing works for me something will work like you need to find a therapist and a therapy that enables your brain to relax and reset so all of those beautiful available neurons in your body that are not doing anything yet can actually be given a new job to help you stabilize like it's very possible it's just that it's not always a cookie cutter yeah you know, do these bedside exercises and you'll be right you know sometimes yeah. you need a very specific custom program for your physical That's mental really emotional everyone to understand that um everyone is different in what they require and what they mm. respond to so for mm. lots of yeah. people they do respond to Giving, getting the advice of starting to move and uh, in an appropriate manner and doing certain exercises. Some people have great recoveries on that. Especially for vestibular neuritis, labyrinthitis, a lot of the unilateral, you know, one-off vestibular injuries, that is often 
you know, I saw one guy who was a surfer and after his ear injury, he, he went back to surfing in the first six weeks. Of course, he was a bit wobbly and a bit hopeless and falling off his surfboard, but he had your textbook elegant recovery. Yeah. And I said, good on you, buddy. Cause you did exactly what we would recommend you do. And he just kept living his normal life, knowing that for that recovery period, he was a little weaker, a little wonkier. Yeah. And he so like they're the easier ones that are going to respond easier. And then the, the more diagnoses that you potentially have or that are undiagnosed or the more chronicity that you have. So the longer you just the personality of being anxious anyway. Like some That's people right. are anxious before a vestibular disorder and then you get a, a scary vestibular attack and it's just yeah. out of control. So that's your normal. And we need yeah. as professionals to look at you in that, in that temperament. Yeah. And that brings me to that second point of mm. the team management. So mm. from, from a lot of people, a physiotherapist alone isn't the right management. It's physiotherapy, audiology, psychology, um, GP, GP um, ENT at some for some people, neurologists for some people. Um, who else am I missing? Well, sometimes endocrinologist, Endocrin- sometimes yeah. cardiologist, sometimes yeah. psychiatrist. Um, yeah. Did I mention? I definitely should have mentioned psychiatrist if I meant or psychologist. I yeah, no, you, you did but. mention psychologist. But I think at the end of the day, these are all so. We, so in the first chapter of the book I'm writing, Healing for Vertigo and Tinnitus, I invite people to take a different approach. And this is what Vicky and I are actually talking about here, which is rather than sort of go, oh my God, I hate what I'm feeling. Somebody needs to fix me. Somebody needs to explain this. And that's externalizing and basically putting all, all of your eggs in the basket out here, that you're wanting the solution to come from outside of you. And that's actually not possible. Like Vicky and I cannot heal you. We can't get your neurons and we can't get your ears and your spinal cord and your eyes and actually get tweezers out. And we can't do the magic for you. Like that would be very invasive and not possible. Like this is really fine neurological rewiring we're talking about. In the same ways we can't strengthen your muscles for you, you've got to go to the gym and strengthen your own muscles. So I think we need to rephrase the whole scenario that for you people out there with vertigo, you are the expert in you and you are the team leader in how you're going to heal. And what you need to do is to employ and find the health professionals who speak your language and who you can trust, who you can ask questions to. And what they're going to do is feed you invaluable information that you then either use because it feels relevant or you say, "Mm, that doesn't feel right for me. I'm not going to use that. So you're the senior leader in your research team and people like Vicky and I and your GP and your neurologist and your emergency doctor and your psychologist, they are all helpful little assistants on your team feeding you in options feeding you in information and some of what we say will be spot on and you'll be like, Oh my God, everything makes sense now. And some of the things we say, you'll be like, no, no, not feeling that. And so you have to be the person who actually makes the end decision because that's the way you get your power back. And that's the way you learn how to decode and demystify all of the uncertainty. So we are giving you, resources skills tools and information but i fully empower every single one of my clients to choose what do i want today what am i seeking today what do i need today it's not what i joey remini want to give them it's it's them asking me what do i need today and i well said i respond to that so it's this patient centered you're the leader we're the assistants and i think that really helps get better 
quicker, more effective, longer lasting recovery results. And that's what, that's certainly what I'm seeing in clinic. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. No, I think that's really well said um, about there's, there's times where um, I've assisted someone and it hasn't worked and they are not at a point in themselves to take on and embrace any advice they um, for whatever reason have blocks mm-hmm. in being able to um, participate and yeah. they really are at a point where they just want that magic wand and they want someone to fix them yeah. and um, that unfortunately is not how it works and yeah to say um, here's some other people that you could go and try come back to me if you want to have another go I'm here but right at this point you're not ready and that's okay that they're not ready, but they need some other strategies to get to that point where they can then go to that next step. Yeah. So for everybody listening who I'm sure there's people out there listening who have recovered and you're like, Oh my God, I remember those days. I remember feeling hopeless. I remember all the confusing and you're beyond that now and you're back to normal life and you're back at tennis and you're back at yoga and you're doing your thing and just congratulations because you've obviously supported yourself You've had a daily practice. You've asked the questions and it might have taken you years, but you've got there. So I want to acknowledge everybody listening who's in that space. For those of you who are not yet in that space and you're feeling angry at people who recover, you're feeling like you want to blame everyone, you're hating your body, life is tough, you're helpless, hopeless and feeling a lot of guilt and shame and self-rejection. I want to let you know that that's okay. Like whatever you feel is where you need to be at the moment. And I'm telling you, sometimes we need to go to rock bottom and through the frustration and into that guilt and that shame until we realise there's another way. And that is actually part of your neuroplasticity. You know, it's not all rainbows and unicorns and lollipops and orchestral music. Every single one of my patients and clients has gone through the darkest of the dark. And that place is actually very valuable. And sometimes it's not until we get really angry and really resentful that we realise we we want to look at it differently and we want to change. And that can be that important impetus and moment of, you know what, I'm ready. I've had enough of being in that place. So take as long as you need. You actually can't force yourself to change. You can't willpower yourself to change. Readiness comes when it comes. and. I don't know about you, Vicky, but I've certainly gone through phases of self-rejection and self-hatred and very dark, difficult, guilting, shaming places. And, you know, I think I'm a better person for it. So allow yourself to be where you are. Just because you feel that today doesn't mean you can't recover and your recovery might start this afternoon. So like be really open to the extraordinary changes of our emotional body and of our belief system, which is what I would consider the emotional and spiritual aspects of our recovery. Those things are are energies that that are light. They're invisible. You can't poke them or touch them. You can't poke an emotion and you can't poke a belief. And they are, they can move through us very quickly and they can, you know, when you get that breath of fresh air and that relief feeling, And it's because the emotions have actually shifted through our being. And so these transitions are available to us when we're ready for them. And so, yeah, I just feel like I want to validate what Vicky said, which is, you know, if you're not ready, that's okay. 
but we want you to know that when you are ready, there are people out there willing to help you start a daily program. I usually recommend about 15 minutes a day. How about you? Uh, it depends on the, the person and the diagnosis. Um, often I give, um, if it's physical exercises they need to do, then it'll be little bits all throughout the day rather than it being one 15 minutes that they have to put aside for it. And that is so that they can tolerate their symptoms and so that they don't push themselves to a point where they then feel awful by the end of the exercise. So it might mm -hmm. be doing one exercise for 30 seconds, five times a day. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, uh, that's just one, one example, but obviously everyone's, um, everyone's treatment program should be individualized for them. Um, yeah. As far as recovery goes, I would say, being able to dedicate 15 minutes to your own personal space and quietness. And a lot of the home practice resources and tools I give clients come back to body scanning and kind of mindfulness and meditation based practices, sometimes written exercises yeah. and where, where applicable, definitely standing, walking, squatting or strengthening and toning exercises. But sometimes I think it's just putting that time aside and it doesn't sound like a lot, 15 minutes, but believe me, that level of commitment is quite a big commitment yeah. and when you're ready to make that and put that 15 minutes aside with kindness and compassion and self-acceptance and self-love that can be a, a real driver towards your healing just to change the way your brain is responding to daily stimuli as vicky was saying throughout the rest of your day yeah yeah no, I completely agree with that. I definitely don't think it needs to be any longer than that or, you know, I, I think that's a, a good amount of time that you spend on yourself. Yeah, uh, yep. yeah. And I've, I've heard other people who have come to me after trying various dynamic neuroplasticity workshops or programs and I think they were told to do an hour a day and I think, you know, everyone is different but an hour is quite a lot and you can neurally fatigue yourself. You can... Yeah burn out and overdo it and the body will actually shut down when it's had enough when it goes into overwhelm and high expectations and pushing push through push through push through the brain will actually shut down and your neuroplasticity will be you know exhausted yeah. when i give someone exercises i consider myself as like a coach and yeah. trying to teach them how to know when to back off from exercises, when to progress themselves, how to progress themselves. They are the person responsible for what they feel at the day that they're doing the exercises. So they know how much they can manage and how it's going to fit into their day. Um, I think that's really important. So if, if you have previously been frustrated at having a set program that's just far too advanced for you and you feel sick for the whole rest of the day because you've done these exercises, that's not the right exercises for you. Yeah. Seek someone else out that is going to fit better with what you feel you can manage. Yeah, so. or use the Rocksteady program because that teaches you how to pace it and how to self-select yeah. from very simple quietening kind of soothing anxiety or panic panic attack focus all the way up to leg strengthening and toning and more yeah. advanced vestibular exercises that are still even difficult for me to yeah. do and I've got a great <laughs> system. But if you want to explore advancing from in a very gentle and compassionate way, as Vicky's saying in self-pacing, saying today I think I need this and this afternoon I might do a bit of that. And you're able to be really empowered with all of those resources. That's what the Rocksteady program is designed yeah, for. Perfect. It's a yeah. really lovely way to complement and extend on from your bedside physiotherapy when you no longer have access to your physiotherapist or you've outgrown 
some of those initial exercises. You can keep progressing if you choose. Mm. So I want to say thank you for your research and it's, it's really valuable to have more and more people studying and being focused in the vestibular field. And um, we forgot to mention that you have a sleeping baby who may or may not wake <laughs> up soon, but sounds like we've been lucky. Still sleeping so far, so <laughs> we got through it. Yeah. But, <laughs> Thinking there might be a moment where I'd have to bring him down and um, show him off to you all. but Which would have been a treat, but, you know, yeah. sleeping baby, we don't want to interrupt a sleeping baby because no, we'll have no, some we very valuable <laughs> neural processes right now as he's sleeping. That's right. <laughs> but thank you so much for your time. I oh, think, you, is it the gold, you're based in the Gold Coast? Yeah, Gold Queensland, Coast in Australia. So yeah. all of the people up in Queensland are very lucky to have Vicky as a resource. Um, and you're potentially maybe running some workshops or retreats for people who want to understand vestibular conditions. That's Do you know right. when that might be? Because I will advertise that in my newsletter for people who are on my list. Yeah, um, hopefully it's probably more likely the start of next year to start. We'll make one at the end of this year. Um, so we'll keep you informed on that. Um, but yep. it's trying to bridge um, the people that maybe have gone through and, um, the acute path and haven't received a resolution in their symptoms or they might have already been down that previously and they're still having issues um, yeah. and they want to speak and see with a team of specialists in um, working out how... What's Where to now? Step? What next? What's, now? What's, the, what's the options to help them recover from here? Great. Well, I'll keep everybody informed and wonderful to talk with you. Thank you again, Joey. Keep up the beautiful work and um, I'm sure we'll remain in contact. We can have we you on again at some point in time. Yes, we will. Thanks, Joey. Bye. All right. Thank you. Visit seekingballots.com.au if you are looking for immediate resources that you can tap into right away from your computer. So I'm Joey Remini and it's a bye for now. <laughs>